Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and it is playoff time. The MLS playoffs are underway. The first round is in the books. Here with me to talk about six games and preview a few more. With varying degrees of fun and information involved, our two fine fellows. Up first, a man who spent time with Bobby Warshaw, which is always a risky proposition. It's Joe Lowry. Hi, Joe. Hello, Taylor. We both did a couple of those watch-alongs with Bobby for Mm -hmm. these first-round playoff games. I thought it was fun. Not only did I enjoy getting to chat with Bobby, because Bobby has lots of interesting ideas on things and and stuff that I've never thought about and kind of challenges your thinking in good ways, I think, that are are helpful, but also just because it was fun to watch soccer. Like, they were fun. It was the technology was fun. It was a good time. Yeah. Did you actually watch the game, though? How much of your conversation was about what was happening on the field? Because I feel like maybe in like the three hours I, I was on that stream, maybe 10 minutes was about the actual game itself. Yeah, very little, generally speaking. And part of that is a symptom of playoff soccer, I think. And part of that is just like conversations that I think tend to be more interesting. And, and we yeah. have platforms like this to talk about the games and get into the nitty gritty. It's not... Uh, Sometimes those watch-alongs, unless you're going in with the express intent to like commentate the game, they are naturally going to, to sort of weave off into some of those other discussions. I, we would know nothing about that. Conversations on this no, show never of weave off not. into other topics at Absolutely all, uh, including failing to introduce our other co-hosts. Let's do that now. Joining us is TSS's <laughs> resident football scran expert, footy scran expert, excuse me, Graham Ruthven. Graham, you requested that we allow at least the first segment of this episode to your comprehensive and exhaustive, exhaustive review of the dude eating a giant taco during the <laughs> FC Dallas game. Uh, do you want me to just turn it over to you? Do I need to ask questions? How do you want to do this? Um, I can just give my analysis straight off the bat, I think. So I didn't watch this match live because it happened in the middle of the night, my time. But it's good to know that my personal brand is so strong that Mm -hmm. people on Twitter (laughs) now tag me whenever any food-related hijinks occur. So I'm thankful for that. I woke this morning to at least three or four uh, tweets directing me towards the giant tackle. And I have so many questions Mm -hmm. about the giant tackle. So for starters... It, it fails the one-hand test. My theory is that for something to be the perfect football food, you need to be able to eat it with one hand so you can, I don't know, what do you do with the other hand? Like gesture and abuse the referee and <laughs> things like that? You know, standard <laughs> football fare. This this poor guy, is as good as his technique was, and it was a very good technique, it looked like he needed a crane to help him get a proper grip of this tackle. And then secondly, how much did that thing cost? Okay, I, I went have some to, insight here. Yeah, keep going, keep going. But I want to I want to hop in after. So I went to a Jets game once and bought quote-unquote nachos and it was just a bag of chips with some cheese sauce yep. in the bag and it cost me $10. So by that measure, that tackle cost like at least as much as Ricardo Pepe. Um, so yeah, I have, I have a lot of questions about the tackle. But Joe, on you go. What are you, what's your analysis? Uh, what did Ricardo Pepe cost? Was it $18 million? 
Yeah, somewhere in that I'm going to guess $18. Did it cost $18 more or less? So apparently, I'm scrolling through J. Sam Jones's Twitter timeline, and he's been all over this taco beat from the start. Credit to Sam in that way. <laughs> Doing the really really have a lot of respect for that. I believe someone responded to him and said that it costs $15. All so right. that's what I'm working that's with right now. Value. It's reasonable, right, for a sporting event. I would say maybe eh, even in everyday life at this point, that's still not ridiculous. I also am looking at a, at a much more zoomed-in photo of said taco, or at least this is claimed to be a similar monster taco. The insides don't look great. I'm not going to lie. The lettuce, there's a lot of lettuce. Uh, the cheese is, is – I, I just am not feeling it. But I will say the tortilla – it is not a full-on hard taco shell. There's got some, I think there's some real depth and almost chew to this tortilla that's it's keeping the taco together. I like that. I respect it. It looks flour, so just factor that in as well. But honestly, the taco is the biggest storyline from that Dallas-Minnesota yeah. game. We can talk more about that game later. The taco <laughs> is, is 100% where we should have started. Well, what we need is a 1,000-word athletic piece on this taco and the guy who bought the taco. So that sounds like an assignment for assignment for Pablo. Yeah. So, you know, get, get on that. It does. I feel like Pablo was probably on that one. It also sounds to me, Joe, based on your description, like they ordered half the ingredients for personal pizzas and half the ingredients for tacos and then just combined them and made a pizza crust taco. And I'm kind of into it. Is that a thing that we need to be eating when we're all in New York together? Do I need to make us all giant tacos? Giant tacos, yes. I think, Taylor, you could probably come up with a better taco than what Dallas is selling at, at Toyota Stadium, <laughs> Toyota Field, whatever it's called. I don't remember. But yes, I'm all in on the giant taco idea. Uh, I appreciate that, Joe. Thank you for that. We should probably talk about the playoffs. Uh, Graham, I hope we've we've done justice to the, the gigantic taco, <laughs> but I'm sure we can come back to it if we need to. On to the playoffs, where five of the six home teams won. Turns out it's good to be better in the regular season. Who knew? We had games with football lines, with baseball markings, a lot to break down. Let's start with New York Red Bulls 1, FC Cincinnati 2. Cincinnati becomes, I believe, the only road team to win in the first round. They're doing it, Joe. They're really doing it. It's It seems that way, doesn't it? Right after Cincinnati collected two wooden spoons and also finished last, so three total last place finishes in their three seasons in Major League Soccer. Then they hop into the playoffs for the first time ever after a much better regular season, and they take down the Red Bulls, who are largely the biggest, at least American, influence for the way that Pat Noonan and FC Cincinnati want to play. This game was aggressive. There was a lot of back and forth. No, you take the ball. No, you take the ball. No, we're going to press. No, you press. We're going to press. There was lots of that sort of cat and mouse game in this match. Both teams want to play pretty much the same way. And that led to bits and, and stretches of pretty brutal soccer. That was always going to be the case in this game, and it's probably going to be the case for Cincinnati's game against Philadelphia in, in the next round. That's what this team. That's what these teams want. The difference for me in this game was the attacking depth that FC Cincinnati have, which is not a sentence that they've really ever been able to say in their existence in Major League Soccer. But they start this game with their usual one-two setup in the attack. So it's Lucho Acosta as the as the attacking midfielder. That's the one, and then Brenner and Brandon Vasquez as the two. Brenner comes off in the 67th minute. Cincinnati are down 1-0 at this point. Lewis Morgan scored an absolute banger in the 48th minute to get the Red Bulls up 1-0. Cincinnati are, are chasing a goal, and Pat Noonan brings on Sergio Santos, who they traded for midseason from the Philadelphia Union. There's another connection there. And basically, he helps break this game open. So Lucho Acosta gets a penalty in the 74th minute. Then you fast forward a little bit. It's the 86th minute. So only a few minutes left in this game for Cincy to try to find something before extra time. Sergio Santos absolutely destroys Dylan Nealis on the left wing, beats him to a ball, plays a really well-composed ball on the floor into Brandon Vasquez in the box, who had dusted Aaron Long in the open field, and Brandon Vasquez finishes. And in this game, it really was the attacking depth for Cincinnati that had... 
that, that made the difference for them over the Red Bulls, who, who really just don't have yeah. that attacking quality. Yeah, and that's what I was going to bring it round to. On the flip side of that, Joe, it kind of highlighted how the Red Bulls don't have that depth, particularly after Lewis Morgan goes off. He, he this is so Scottish, but he scores that goal, which is a brilliant goal, and then immediately seems to pick up an injury, or he, he maybe he injured himself in the celebration. He might have kind of planted his leg, and he did this sort of stance as a celebration, and I wonder maybe if he tweaked something there, but he goes off with, with an injury two minutes after scoring that great goal, and that just highlighted how lightweight this Red Bull attack is without him. Uh, Manuel has potential, but he'd, he'd only just scored the, his first two goals to the Red Bulls on, on decision day, and, and it doesn't really seem like he knows what his role should be for this team, so there were times when he was coming short to Luquinhas, when it seemed like uh, he wanted Manuel to, to run in behind and there are other times when Manuel was making such an ambitious run in behind when the Red Bulls were in a phase of keeping the ball and he really should have been the option for a bounce pass or something and then Patrick Clamalla comes off the bench in the second half but the opportunities never came for him and he's not the sort of player to create something on his own and the kind of final phase of this match when the Red Bulls really should have been chasing a goal they they don't really do anything at all they have 12 minutes of stoppage time as well to to play with and it never really felt like there was there was a push for that second goal so there is a lot to like about the way Struber sets up his team but that attack just isn't good enough or deep enough to make a run in the playoffs and when you contrast that with what Cincinnati have you can see the difference between these two teams. So there's a lot to like about the way he sets up his team. Is there a lot to like about his post-match comments, Graham? <laughs> yeah, I know that a lot of Red Bulls fans weren't very pleased with with uh, Gerhard Struber's comments after the match. I didn't see where, this. What did he say? Yeah. Yeah, so he bemoaned, quote, Twitter experts for expecting better from the Red Bulls this year. Oh, my um, God. So, Joe, I assume he means yep. you. Are, are Red Bulls fans oh. going to make T-shirts up with the receipts? Uh, <laughs> okay. I, I see that Austin have done that with with your with oh. your predictions after, after uh, this season, but... Yeah, there was, a, there was a brilliant reply to these quotes from the, the account that we mentioned last week, the MLS images that precede unfortunate events account, which showed a headline from 2021, which said, Struber says Red Bulls can win MLS Cup in 2022. So it seems like on one hand, he is uh, he's kind of talking up his team's chances and then complaining when other people expect them to do things. But I think Red Bull fans are also just a bit miffed at how Struber has been fairly open about his ambitions to climb the managerial ladder this season. And he's been linked with a couple of, of European jobs recently so maybe he's not there by the start of 2022 season that's that seems like a quite a, a feasible outcome over the off season and and this is a Red Bull team that yes there is some stuff to like about the way they play there's obviously that Red Bull quality of how they press but it's not a team that's exactly thriving this year it feels like the Red Bulls just in general need an injection of a little bit of life you look at that you look at that crowd in Harrison I know it's a, a middle of the day Saturday game there's there's some mitigating factors there but Feels like the club maybe needs a little bit of invigoration and maybe a new manager, a couple new signings in the offseason might do that. Wait, wait, wait. So sorry. Gerard Struber said after this game, just to be clear, Grim, because I didn't see this, that Twitter experts were saying that they were going to do more. I, I don't. Yes, I do. That is my understanding. Okay, so because earlier, before this playoff game, he talked about how Twitter experts doubted that they were going to be here in the first place in the playoffs. <laughs> and I, I, I quote tweeted that. I have that tweet embedded in a backfield article we wrote before the playoffs started. He's... My mind is blown right now. That makes absolutely no sense. I yeah. do think, though, Graham, the answer to this is to just get another T-shirt like Austin yep. fans have made, which I am genuinely trying to find and will buy if it is $20 or less with all the MLSsoccer.com predictions on it with people doubting Austin. I'm on that shirt. I want that shirt. Um, so maybe the Red Bulls need one, too. Yeah. 
So, so here's a tweet from Ben Cork, who is the, the editor of the Once a Metro New York sure. Red Bulls blog. And his tweet is, despite saying, quote, he can live with this, Gerhard Struber lashes out at who he calls Twitter experts that expect, expected better from the That's team. That's hilarious. Struber says, Thought of, thoughts of trophies for RBNY this season was, quote, dreaming. That, so, is, <laughs> all, that is honestly a joke. Like, that is, that is a ridiculous thing to say with all the other comments that he's made this season. That is genuinely absurd. Yeah, the Twitter expert thing feels a bit like the equivalent of the people are saying. Like, you can just kind of create a group of people who you've decided are saying a thing, and then when you need to create They're a saying it, Taylor. Yeah, exactly. People are saying it. Well, you can swing the other way. Um, yeah, yikes. I mean, if that's what Austin have done, they've just done the flip side of that. <laughs> at least at least Austin have been consistent all year with p- saying people have doubted us, people have doubted us, which is true. A lot of people have doubted Austin, and they keep winning games. We'll get to that. But, I mean, the Red Bulls, Struber's completely changing his own narrative. He's flipped from one side to the other saying, oh, people doubted us, now saying people believed in us too much. And, and those things can't really both be true. So, Joe, uh, may- maybe you're not the Twitter expert he was referring to. I would say you are a USMNT expert. Uh, I will come to you for this one. Much has been made of Aaron Long's defensive work in this game, or maybe the lack thereof, especially on the winning goal by Vasquez. Uh, any thoughts to add on that one aside from an audible sigh or, oh boy? Yeah, oh boy. Uh, it is not a good moment for Aaron Long. He doesn't look good. I-, I will say, and I'm not trying to defend Aaron Long as a player because he's not perfect, and I, I would prefer him not to start in mm-hmm. Qatar for the U.S. men's national team. That is a brutal situation to yeah. be in as a center back. Isolated 1v1 in that much space. Like, you are just asking to be hung out to dry. I would wager the amount of center backs in the world that deal with that situation perfectly is is very small. And, and I would wager there probably are none of them in MLS or, or maybe just a few of them. It is a tough situation to be in isolated in that much space. So I'm sympathetic to Aaron Long, but yeah, it, it doesn't look great when you think about him being the guy who's supposed to help you defend in a high line and help you defend in space. I think his ability in that way is is valuable at times, but man, it, it did not do a lot for his case. I'm almost more interested with both Long and Walker Zimmerman, who are both going to be sitting out until the World Cup. Nashville's gone. Threadables are gone from the playoff field. They're not going to be playing a game for the next month. That is, that's bad. And and that's exactly why, though, to be fair, Greg Berhalter's doing this camp later in October, I believe it will start, with MLS players who are already out of the playoffs or who didn't make the playoffs in the first place to try and, and develop some of those players and get them fit and just ready and, and, and continuing to maintain their fitness ahead of the World Cup. So we'll see how well that camp works. But it is not great if you're the U.S. men's national team to have the two players who are likely, like it or not, are likely going to be the U.S.'s starting center backs out for a month prior to the I mean, time. I guess you get them in camp. They get more reps together. It does feel like them both not being in the playoffs, but now being in that camp for a month is probably going to more so solidify them as your starters. I would say with Aaron Long, it feels a bit like with this sequence, like you're carrying too many things and you just can't keep all of them in your hands. You're going to drop one because no matter how you look at this, there's there's something bad. Uh, and and my argument would be uh, for people who haven't seen it, it's Sergio Santos gets the ball. He's He is much faster than the Red Bulls players trying to contain him. He ends up uh, centering it. It's a great pass. Uh, to Vasquez who finishes but it's Aaron Long sort of is aware of the threat about as quickly as you can be tries to keep up realizes he can't I think also then tries to step in front to impede the run a little bit to slow it down and can't do that either I think realizes it would be a card in that moment and so in the end he can't make the play he can't sort of body the man off the ball and so it ends up being a goal 
And I think where I come down is just that he's a step slower than he used to be, and he hasn't gotten that that quickness back, that speed back. Maybe he will, but it seems unlikely he gets it back in a month. So for me, it was a a sort of visible sign of a thing that we can't really afford. And if he's meant to be the the speedy cover, I'm not sure he is as capable of that, at least at present. But we should, before we move on, stop talking about Aaron Long, stop talking about the Red Bulls, and at least give a little more credit to FC Cincinnati because they won a playoff game. And and this yeah. feels like one of those games in which the the team that is more likely to give us sort of fireworks in the next round did end up advancing. It feels like Cincinnati yes. more capable of exciting football at this point. Yeah, 100%. Graham, do you agree with that? Because I think we can see the difference in talent between, in, in top-end yeah. talent between Cincy and, and the New York Red Bulls. You can even see that to an extent with Cincinnati's attack relative to the Union's attack. The Union have been firing on all cylinders this season for large stretches, but Cincinnati have maybe the second-best attacking core in Major League Soccer after LAFC. I don't think that's crazy to say. So, yeah, in terms of setting up a better matchup with better narratives, Graham, it does seem to me like the right team advanced here. No, absolutely. 100% agree. It's, it was slightly strange to think of this one as a, an upset, technically, because obviously you have the, the fourth seed against what, or Cincinnati, they were the fifth seeds, right? Um, obviously, yeah the Red Bulls being at home as well so technically an upset but I personally think the the better team certainly more the more exciting team the team that I want to watch in the conference semi-finals has has gone through so I don't really have a horse in this race but just from a, from a pure entertainment standpoint I am pleased with the outcome of this one all right well let's keep it moving FC Cincinnati uh congratulations to you and your supporters congratulations as well to the Galaxy who see off Nashville in a 1-0 win another game in which we had a a quiet first half maybe not as much uh going on but maybe Joe that was also part of the Galaxy's game plan was to kind of keep things dead boring I think in some ways it was part of both teams' game plans. They just do it a little differently. I think you get to the end of this first half, there weren't many shots on on goal, there weren't many shots, period. There wasn't a ton of danger posed by either team. I think the Galaxy in some ways are are happy with that because that means they've kept Hani Mukhtar quiet. And Hani Mukhtar is almost certainly going to win MLS MVP this year, won the Golden Boot, has been excellent all year long. Then you look at Nashville, though, and, and they're also pretty happy with how that first half went. They're probably a little more happy than than uh, than the Galaxy are. They're probably a little happier because they are not playing at home. And so Nashville's style is more open, I think, that a lot of folks give it credit for, but they are still trying to play against the ball, bait you into to making a mistake and then going and attacking in transition. That's a huge part of what they do. But yeah, I think both teams are, are pretty solidly content with that first half. Then you go in the second half, and the Galaxy do start to threaten a little bit more. They have a goal that's disallowed. Chicharito scored a, a beautiful goal in the 51st minute. It's called back for a foul in the buildup. Nine minutes later, Julian Araujo scores a headed finish in the 60th minute to, to get the 1-0 win. One nil lead, and that does turn into a one nil win. Nashville never really threatened in this game, and the Galaxy deserve a ton of credit for that. I thought, and I wrote yeah. about this, I thought the best part of the Galaxy's performance wasn't necessarily their possession play, which is a hallmark under Greg Vanny. It's a, it's a hallmark with Ricky Pouge in midfield because that's what he does, and he does it better than anybody in MLS. But man, I thought the best part of the Galaxy in this game was how they controlled the game to limit Hani Mukhtar's control of the game. And I kind of already mentioned that, but I believe he had three touches, Mukhtar did, in the the box in zone 14, which is that zone right in front of the box that, that really valuable stuff can happen in. Three touches. That was one of the, the lowest totals that Mukhtar had all season. And you can apply that same logic to his touches in the final third and just his touches, period. Mukhtar did more than any other national player in this game in terms of creating chances and I believe maybe expected goals as well. But the Galaxy did a great job of limiting him in this game. I think, at least for my money, that's where this one was won. 
Yeah, it felt like Nashville did a, a decent job of the first half of their game plan, where they generally did deny the Galaxy space, particularly in in, in the first half, and it got slightly more ragged than in the second half, where the Galaxy were creating a little bit more. Um, but the, the the five at the back for Nashville, with the midfield cl- close to the defence as well, just stopped the Galaxy from playing through them. It was the other side of the the game plan, as as you referenced there, Joe, that wasn't executed as well, and a large part of that was down to how. The, how well the Galaxy did, but Nashville just didn't offer much in, in, in attack. And after the Galaxy score that opening goal, you're maybe preparing yourself for some form of crescendo from Nashville and they and they push uh, Walker Zimmerman up as an emergency number nine for yes. the last 10 minutes. I, I enjoyed that uh, as a preview of what will inevitably happen for the, the US at this at this World <laughs> Cup. Um but uh, it just it, it just never got going for for Nashville. Mukhtar was was never involved in the game, and and if an opposition team can stop uh, Hani Mukhtar, then who else can step up for Nashville in, in the attacking third? That is part of the the problem for them. So I thought that the, the the Galaxy did a very good job of executing their game plan on as as a whole. So Graham uh, Walker Zimmerman stood out for you as the number nine. Who stood out for you on the Galaxy side of things? So what I liked about this Galaxy performance was that they stayed patient. So they, they stuck to their game plan even as uh, Nashville continued to, to frustrate them and, and they got that goal in the end. Obviously, Rick, Ricky Pugh has, has, has been a, a season-changing addition for, for the Galaxy and there were more signs of what he brings to this Galaxy team. His connection with Chicharito is, is just such an asset and we saw the two of them link up for that disallowed goal that, that Joe was, was talking about. And that's the supply line the Galaxy want to keep flowing through the playoffs. If they can keep that going in every single game, it really could carry them through through the the, the whole postseason. It's 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 that good, you know. The two players are 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 both quality individuals, but it feels like they're adding. You know, Pure just got the 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 person who can take the the chances that he's creating, and Chicharito has someone who's creating chances for him. So it's a, a very good partnership. I thought Brugman has also been a, a season changing addition, and his presence in the middle of the a pitch, they allowed he allowed the Galaxy just to keep the the foot on top of Nashville and that spine of Brugman, Puj and Chicharito from the base of the midfield to the front of the attack is just so strong. And I think the Galaxy looks stronger now than at any other point of the season. So so Koulibaly and Caceres are playing well together as a centre-back pairing. As a reference, Puj is in form, Chicharito's in form. You have Jovalich as a good option off the bench. Grand Sears' work rate was 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 very high as it tends to be, but in, in this match was very valuable. He brings that energy in the attack. And he uh, he gets the nice assist in, in, in this match as well. If the Galaxy can get Costa to start contributing in a mean, meaningful way, and it feels like maybe these games are the are the matches that they they signed him for. If they can do that, I, I could buy that the Galaxy are a top two or three team in this season's playoffs. It really does feel like they are peaking at the right time. Obviously, Greg Vanny has experience of of achieving that with with teams in the playoffs, and and yeah, very much like what I liked about this Galaxy performance was. They saw off a good team who we talked about before in, in the preview show last week that, that Nashville had the qualities to be a playoff team. The Galaxy saw them off with relative ease and it felt like they never really got out of second or third gear. It feels like they've got more to offer as well. So they're, they're a dangerous team right now. Um, we'll talk more about the Galaxy when we look at the the next round's matchups. For now, Joe, real quick, pouring one out for Nashville. Do you feel like this game is an indicator that while their system works in terms of getting results in the regular season, making the playoffs, that there are ways to kind of shut it down that basically make them unlikely to score? Like, Do you think they basically have to change some of their approach? Do they need to give a little bit more variety or do you expect them to kind of stick with what's been working? 
No, I expect them to stick with what's been what's been working for as long as Gary Smith is there. I don't think this game should be a referendum on how Nashville play. The way they play is not not unique, really, in Major League Soccer. They're willing to step up and press, but they like to be compact in moments, and they like to hit at you in transition. I still think that's a great recipe for playoff soccer. I think it's a better recipe when you have an FC Cincinnati level of attacking talent, when you have even like a, just a, a more well-rounded team. I think relying on Hani Mukhtar to the extent that Nashville did this year and spending you know $2 million to bring in a, a right wing back and Shaq Moore in the summer as your big summer signing, instead of you know trying to sort out what happens to support Hani Mukhtar, that to me feels like a little bit of an issue. So heading into 2023 for Nashville to, to tie a bow on this, I'm looking much more to how they continue to polish the roster rather than any major tacticals, uh, tactical changes. There we go. Nashville need polishing. Galaxy plenty polished, at least so far. That's two games down. Many more still to be discussed. Uh, back soon after a short break. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Hey folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early, there are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation, there's going to be Offers coming through willy-nilly, there's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there. There's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain. There are many things to deal with, and unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively. But for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did-we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. 
Welcome back. Uh, we are talking MLS playoffs, the first round now in the books. Let's talk uh, Austin edging past RSL on penalties. Graham, I'm coming to you first for this one because I came into this game a little bit late. And when I saw the group chat, I saw like RSL up to their old tricks again. And I thought, wait a minute, yeah. am I watching this live? Because by, by my timing, that seems like RSL would have been up to their old tricks inside the first 10 minutes. It turns out they were in terms of uh, causing some consternation to their opponent. Yeah, so that this was for me anyway. This was the best match of of the first round. This was the the one that was most entertaining, the one that had me gripped the most. I know it's it's obviously it obviously comes from RSL having those that opening fifty minute spell where they score twice and set up the rest of the match, which from that point on very much felt like can Austin come back and and really show their quality because I don't think anyone would doubt in terms of the quality of the two teams that that Austin are the better of of, of the two sides, but. Watching this match live from pretty early on, you just knew that RSL were going to poop on the party in some way. And as I say, for the first 15 minutes, there was poop everywhere from, from <laughs> RSL. The, the first goal was scored just three minutes in when Cordova gets up and, and in front of his man to, to glance a, a Brady cross in, in, into, the, into the middle. And it just felt like Austin hadn't really started at that point. There was no awareness of the danger. There's no engagement on either the player making the cross or the, or the player having the header either. And then RSL win a penalty from a handball and Cordova grabs a second goal. And at that moment, it's a nightmare scenario for Austin, who have previously had trouble breaking down low defensive blocks. And obviously RSL have that history of, of doing a, a backs-to-the-wall job in the playoffs better than anyone else. So it was a nightmare scenario for Austin. It was so important. I felt it was so important that they got that first goal back pretty quickly and certainly before half time. Because I think if it gets into the second half and it's still 2-0 to RSL, then the anxiety starts to crank up. Maybe that starts to impact the the, the atmosphere and certainly the, de- the decision-making of some of the players. Then, of course, you have the, the Rubio Rubin red card, which is... Which is silly because I, I, you know, obviously it's it's something he doesn't need to do, and I can't imagine Pablo Mascheroni was was too happy yeah. about that decision yeah. from his player. But I can't actually make up my mind whether this red card helps or hinders Austin because at that point, RSL are still trying to get out and create chances. That's where the red card comes from—a a ball in behind for Ruben. And as long as RSL were doing that, Austin were surely quite happy that they would get chances due to due to the the space being left. However, as soon as RSL go down to ten men. It is a full-on backs-to-the-wall job. And and that kind of made life hard, harder for Austin in a way. And had it not been for that handball in Scott Caldwell in, in stoppage time, it comes so late in the game, RSL were almost there. Had it not been for that handball, which I think probably is a handball in the end, but it's, it's a marginal call. You know, you can't you can't really say it was a deliberate handball. RSL would have got, got over the line if that hadn't happened. So it, it was... Uh, RSL, they'll look back at that and, and rue their luck a little bit and some of the decision-making from particularly Ruben in this game. But I, I don't think anyone could argue that the better team didn't win. The final 20 minutes of this match were basically a training exercise where RSL weren't even bothering putting any pro- pressure on the crosser. If you look at the chance that leads to the Caldwell handball, there isn't a single player within 10 yards of uh, Diego Fagundes when he's crossing it in. And all nine, nine outfield RSL players and the goalkeeper are either inside the box or just outside. They weren't even bothering with having an out ball, and that was kind of how it was for the last 20 minutes. So 
credit to Austin because that they've struggled in the regular season with those sort of scenarios and when it mattered most they were able to to, to pull something at the back. In my mind Pablo Mastorani is no stranger to a red card so hopefully he won't be so upset with Rubio Rubin but maybe <laughs> just a little bit upset. Joe I'm guessing you were not upset with uh, Austin FC or the way that they responded because I think there were some pretty electric performances in this one for them. Yeah, I thought they had some good moments in this game. I think you can see the quality of Sebastian Driussi whenever you watch this team. I was captivated by a lot of the stuff that he did, and then also what Brad Stuver did, mm-hmm. right? Austin took 87,000 shots and 87,000 crosses in this game, and they couldn't all the way break through RSL to the point where they win in regulation, but we go to extra time. Neither team scores in extra time, and we go to penalties, and Brad Stuver comes up big. Now, RSL, to be to be... I guess, fair to them. I don't know. They're not going to be happy about this. Some of the penalties that RSL took were dreadful. The yeah. last one that goes over the bar was like, like comical in a lot of ways. You I, knew I he was for missing RSL. as soon as he yeah. walked you, yeah, you really totally, did. Totally. You really did know. So, I mean, RSL didn't do themselves a, a lot of favors in this penalty shootout, but Brad Stuver makes a ridiculous save in this game as well. He comes up big on uh, Ojeda's penalty kick to basically seal the deal for Austin, and it is a, a really strong save, a strong wrist from Stuver. It's a it's a weird penalty, and the shootout was weird. This game was weird. But mm. credit to Austin, they needed to win this game with how they built the narrative around their team this year, and they did right. They absolutely did. Now they're going to play against a Dallas team that I think suits them a little bit more, just like it suits Dallas a little bit better than both of the first round matches for those teams. I think this Austin-Dallas matchup, and we can talk about this later, is going to be a, a fun one. And credit to Austin. They got the job done. The the best save in the shootout, I don't know if this is the one you're talking about, Joe, because I can't really remember the order of, of, of the players that took the penalties. But the one that kind of like bounces on top of the bar. Twice. And then comes, yeah, it hits the bar the twice. And, Stuver, and, and one thing that goes underrated here is Stuver makes the initial save. So he goes down to his right, the shooter's left. He makes the save. The ball hits up on the bar twice, and Stuver is so quick to react. He's on the ground on the right side of the goal. His head is already turned. He gets up just in case the ball spins back over the goal line. That doesn't happen very often, but he's aware enough to be to, to be uh, awake in that moment to step up and make the second save if he needs to. Now, he doesn't actually have to, but man, like everything about that save was so good. Brad Stuver is a really good goalkeeper. I don't know that this was necessarily his best game outside of the shootout, but man, yeah, a lot, a lot to like about Austin in that way. I think Stuver might be their their really most important player heading into the next round. He's he's definitely seen that video of yeah. the, the the goalkeeper yeah. celebrating the save as the ball spins back and bounces over the line. That was that's what uh, that was about. Two things for me on that. One, a, a comment. Uh, I felt for Ojeda there because you can see him sort of move towards that ball because there's the instinct of like if you're taking that penalty in the run of a normal game then that ball is live and he can tap it in and he'll be fine. So you see him step towards it like, ah, and then remember that he's not allowed to make a play. The second thing is a question that I I feel like I know the answer to. It may seem very obvious. Stuver is allowed to make that second save, right? Like he he can make as many saves as he needs to. He could have picked that ball up, right? It's not like the initial save and then you have to leave it be or anything like that to to the best of your knowledge. I think you can, yeah. As far as I'm aware, you can still go in and and, and do that second job. Yeah, Uh, surely you can... Because if you just pick up the ball, like what what are you going to do about it? Like it hasn't crossed the line, so it yeah. can't be counted as a goal. So I just yeah. in my mind, it's like there's the shot and there's the save, and and that's all you're allowed to do. So it never occurs to me. Like I, I don't think I've ever seen anybody get back up and make that second save if they had to. 
So I, I hope one day we get to see that, and then I hope one day we find out for sure. But uh, I do think that that was one of the more ridiculous shootouts I've ever seen uh, because I think – uh, yeah, Star- Stuver goes the right way the first three times, uh, so he makes two saves. And then the last one for Schmidt is the only time he goes the wrong way, and that's the one that's skied 40 yards over the bar. Uh, McMath goes the right way for Driussi, and then after that is basically just kind of diving the wrong way, guessing. I think he's definitely trying to react, and I think that plays into RSL just not... Once they start missing, I think the anxiety goes up and they're no longer sort of in control, making the the calm decision. I think it's a lot more emotional reaction, and that's where I think misses start to happen. That's where penalties don't get saved, and that's where Austin goes through. So congratulations to Austin, commiserations to RSL. I look forward to talking about Austin again when we get to their game against Dallas. But we've got another game to talk about first, or a couple more games. But up next, we're going to talk Montreal-Orlando. Joe. I was viciously attacked on Monday's episode uh, for something I said. I'd like to read you a quote from a piece I read today. Montreal are usually awesome to watch. For the first 67 minutes on Sunday evening, CF Montreal were less awesome to watch than normal. Now, that was written by some guy I don't know, Hmm. but I feel slightly vindicated that my attention wandered while I was watching this one. Yes, you should. Taylor, the reason you got attacked is because you said you were hopping on the Montreal bandwagon and then just ripped him apart for how the game worked. And so that's why I flamed you. But no, you're absolutely right. Like Parts of this game against Orlando were slow and part of that was Montreal we'll circle back to that in in two seconds the other part to talk about Orlando because I don't have a ton to say about Orlando in this game is they were just there to muck stuff up right that that's a lot of what Orlando City do they have the right personalities to do that stuff they're like just trying to bring chaos in so many different ways and I I love that about them I really respect that I think that's a huge part of what they try to do and it it was kind of working they had the best chance of the first half they had some better moments Montreal to get back to them struggled to break Orlando down they're in this you know, sort of fluid 3-4-3 shape. You had Ismail Akone in the, the left half space and Georgiou Mihaljevic in the right half space and Kai Kamara as the number nine. There's talent in this team, Victor Wanyama and Sampiet sort of patrolling the midfield. It was just too slow. Like, Montreal didn't have the, uh, the, the player out on the field to go 1v1 and really break through Orlando or to provide that little bit of extra pace or depth or whatever it is. It reminded me, this is silly to say, but it reminded me of what we saw in Man City and in Liverpool, right? Where City, Pep Guardiola comes out with Kevin De Bruyne and, and Gunduan in the half spaces. And, and those players are exceptional, far better than anyone that, that, that CF, Montreal, CF Montreal have. But they're not really going to beat you 1v1. They're not going to make a ton of runs in behind. It was just kind of stagnant. And that's the way this game played out from Montreal for about 65 minutes until the goal. And it is a beautiful goal sequence. It's the 68th minute. Montreal are in possession. Orlando are back in their defensive third. That was the pattern for the vast majority of this game. And it's a little bit of quick combination play to really break Orlando all the way down. It's Waterman who's playing as the right center back. He finds Kai Kamara. Kai Kamara finds Georgie. Georgie plays a ridiculously good pass to Ismail Kone, who's breaking into the box. And it was Kone who provided that little bit of dynamism that Montreal needed in this game. It wasn't like a 1v1 dribble, I'm going to dribble past a bunch of people and score. It was Kone seeing the open space, having the mind to actually go and exploit it, and a great pass from George Mihaljevic to finish the job off to Kone. It was a great sequence, and representative of how Montreal wants to play. I think they deserve a ton of credit for staying in this game. I don't love the initial lineup choice by Wilfred Nance, but without Romel Kyoto, he doesn't have a ton of other really high-quality options to do that 1v1 kind of thing. So I'm sympathetic to that. But man, credit to Montreal. They were the third best team in MLS this season. And they looked good for the last 30 minutes of this game. Georgie gets the second goal to make it 2-0 on a penalty late in the match. And that one's done. Joe, can you tell us a little bit more about Kone? Because um, 
Kaelin Carr was on Sky Sports yesterday talking about him. There's a little bit of chatter around him from Premier League clubs. I think maybe you you maybe you maybe uh, you started that chatter, chatter on, on, on Monday's show. I think you said it wouldn't be a surprise to see him in the Premier League anytime soon. Well, it seems like those rumours are starting and, and <laughs> Kaelin Carr was on Sky Sports to, to talk yeah. about him. So, it, like, how good a player is he and how good a player can he be? Yeah, he's, he's very good. He's not all the way well-rounded. And I'd love to take credit for starting that chatter. There were like full-on talks and almost contracts signed for Kone to go to England in the last transfer right. window over the summer. Yeah, because you talked about right, it. Right, of course. They knew yeah. you would talk <laughs> they about knew it down the road. Time yeah. is a flat mm-hmm. start. Uh, yes, Taylor, yeah. sorry. I did do that. Anyway, yep. setting that aside, yeah, Kone, uh, I believe, was born in the Ivory Coast, then moved to, to Canada and Montreal. He plays youth soccer in, in Canada and ends up getting some sort of invitation to train with Montreal. I, I'm a little fuzzy on all of those details, but it's a weird story of how he kind of fell into Montreal's lap or how they found him. I don't know what the right phrasing is there, but he's like, he's a unicorn. He plays like a gazelle out there. He has a really strange build. He's six foot two ish, six foot two, six foot three, really skinny, long legs. He's very technical, is good in tight spaces, and he covers a ton of ground with his long strides. And, and the thing he does best is break into the box and make those kind of, of late runs, like the, think the Frank Lampard runs. And he's done that a number of times for Montreal this year in a number of big moments and helped them out in in those moments. So he's a really good player. He has a lot of room to develop. I think he can improve some of his work on the ball. I think he can continue to become a contributor on both sides of the ball and just continue to, to develop in that way. But he's young. He's 20 years old. He, he hasn't been playing professional soccer for all that long. And he's been excellent to watch this year for Montreal. And I'm excited to see what's next for him. He also led to a good 30-minute debate last night uh, where I was ganged up on because Sam uh, floated the question of, if you're building a team, would you rather have Kone or Weston McKinney? Uh, (laughs) And that led to uh, a a larger argument about how they all uh, dislike Weston McKinney but refuse to acknowledge it publicly. Fair. Uh, So uh, that said, I think I I went with Kone mostly because he's he's got the, the youth. Uh, and the, you know, just overall quite, quite good. Uh, not that Weston McKinney isn't. See, this is how it Expected went and it got dog. awkward real fast. Yes, <laughs> Expected exactly. dog, baby. That's what it's about. <laughs> uh, Graham, uh, what did you make of this game yourself? Kone aside, were there other things that stood out to you? The performance of George Mihalovic mm-hmm. was one thing I was I was keeping an eye on. I'm, I'm a big fan of his. I know I'm not alone in that. He's a player that we've highlighted a, a number of times. And we said in our previous show that that Montreal probably needed Mihalovic to get back to the form he was in for, for the first half of the year. And, and this was a, a much more like it from him. And when you have a possession style like Montreal do, it's important to have those players who can exploit space wherever they see it. Obviously, Kone did that in this match, and I think Mihalovic did it to, to a certain extent as well. It, it can be difficult to nail down exactly what his position is in this team because at times he's deep and then he's out to the right and then he's buzzing around the edge of the box and picking up second balls, which is where he he uh, picks up the ball for the, for the first goal to thread the pass into Kone. And I know he's the, the secondary striker in a front too, but that, that doesn't quite tell you what he offers this team when he's on form. He does a whole lot for Montreal and he, as I say he threaded the pass through for Kony for the first first goal and then he converts the penalty for the second goal which incidentally he won that penalty as well so if Montreal have a, a fit and inform Mihalovic for these playoffs that that could be a bit of a game changer for them uh where are we uh what's the latest on Romo Kyoto Joe how does he change what they would do if he is able yeah. fit and ready to go back from injury in time for their next game who sits? How does that change up what Montreal wants to do? Yeah, so he was on the bench in this game, which is, I think, a good sign for Montreal. The fact that he was 
clearly able to dress but didn't actually have to play, that's huge because they might be able to get him on the field for their next game against NYCFC on Sunday. So that's a good sign for them. I think it's one of the the three really central midfielders who drop out of the lineup. It's either Kone or or Piet or it, one of those two players. It's not going to be Wanyama. It's probably Kone just because he is the youngest. He's playing, like I said, in a more attacking role in this game. I think he's better from deep. I, I don't love him in that sort of left half space attacking role. You put Kyoto in that role, slide Georgia a little bit more underneath, or even just leave him shaded towards the right like he was in this game. And you either have your 3-4-3 or maybe you have like a 3-4-1-2 or a 3-5-2, whatever that looks like. I think if Kyoto's ready to go, we'll see him start against NYCFC. Here we are. Uh, speaking of NYCFC, we will talk about them next. First, one more break. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back. Let's talk NYCFC 3, Miami nil. Joe, this was a game that it seemed like people were leaning NYCFC, but then also kind of hyped about Miami. They're turning around the form they've been in. Uh, This felt like it could go either way. And in the end, it ends pretty resoundingly in New York's favor. How did that happen? Yeah, New York are just way better than Inter-Miami. I think it's it's pretty clear. You look at the, the difference in talent in pretty much every line of the field outside of Gonzalo Higuain, but even he has his limits. Miami's back line is is pretty weak. They don't have a ton of quality in that area. And then you look at their midfield, they're strong in, in, in Mota and Gregore and Pozuelo. That's a good trio. But NYCFC are just deep, and they know exactly how they want to play. Even without Keaton Parks in the starting lineup, he comes on the bench, comes off the bench later in this match. And without Tyus Magna, who was clearly not able to go in this game, he's not even on their bench. NYCFC were still dominant. Now, they were open. They were too open at times for my liking. But Inter-Miami saw that and raised them and, and were like exponentially more open. And, and also credit to NYCFC for that, though, right? Because they're built to make teams look bad, right? They're built to carve right through you. Miami did them some favors with some of the defensive errors they made. But NYCFC are a good team, right? They are, I think they have really rounded into form at the right time. Montreal is going to be a tough game for them, far tougher than this one against Miami was. But 3-0 was the right scoreline in this game. NYCFC created far more chances. They were dangerous from the start. Miami had a couple of nice moments, but never really looked all that threatening. I I thought NYCFC were the far better team in this game, and I thought this result was fair. The the thing with NYCFC heading into these playoffs is that if they can get their best players in form, and we mentioned this in, in, in the preview show last week, the, the talent that they have, even taking you know Tati out of, out of this team mid-season as, as happened, it, it still makes them a serious force. So Maxi Morales is very good in this game. Callens plays well. Santi Rodriguez, I thought, was excellent. Yeah. And even with uh, Magno missing, as you mentioned there, Joe, you know, Hebert d- does a, a good job of leading that attack. And then Keaton Parks comes off the bench for the final 10 minutes, you know, get, regaining a bit of fitness. So just the the number of players who not just not just good players, but the fact that NYCFC have have done this before and did it twelve months ago, just the muscle memory that they have got gives them a bit of an advantage. And I think that conference semi final between Montreal and NYCFC is surely going to be an interesting one because the ability both teams have on the ball, and that that's five wins in a row for NYCFC as well. So. They, um, they're playing good soccer, they have momentum, a lot of their good players are back, although there's still a few out. It feels like, as you say, Joe, they're, they're rounding into form at the, at the right time, and we have, uh, we've seen this before from them. It's almost like they've, they've done it before. 
Uh, Graham, should we talk about Maxi Morales for a moment? Because I think we both were, were pretty impressed by yeah. him uh, for various reasons. Yeah, he was the best player on on the pitch. I think most people would probably agree with that. And he was a big reason why NYCFC end up winning this one pretty comfortably. And obviously, the highlight of this of his performance oh, is, yeah. is the the goal that ended a nineteen pass oh, move. So that good. Saw NYCFC go out to the left, then they go back to the goalkeeper, then they come out to the right, then they cross field to the left, then they come back into the middle and then into the box and there's a nice little back heel for the assist and, and then the finish from Morales into the far corner of the net and it was a demonstration of what this NYCFC team yep. is capable of. There will be tougher tests in the playoffs starting with, as I mentioned, Montreal in the conference semi-final, but Maxim Morales was just at the heart of it all and he, and he gave NYCFC control and creativity and he was really the one kind of dictating their game from the middle of the pitch and in a, a, a slightly advanced position as well he obviously gets forward as demonstrated by the goal but he was he was the beating heart of this team uh, I loved for that goal I mean obviously the, the pass is uh, quite lovely the the possession and the ability to move the ball all very good but the thing that stood out to me uh, for Maxi Morales is that in the kind of final seconds before he actually ends up scoring, he never gives up. He is running all over the place. He makes like four different runs in the maybe five seconds before he scores, and he doesn't get the ball uh, for any of those runs, but he, he doesn't get frustrated. He doesn't throw his hands in the air. He doesn't sort of stop and walk backwards. He just keeps recycling. He keeps hustling, and because of that, I think he's on his toes. He's already moving, and that's why he's so alive to that little cutback, and that's why he's able to then have that really good control and finish it stood out to me that he just keeps running he keeps working and there's that engine in there that I think really helped set that tone for NYCFC who genuinely looked like tiki-taka Barcelona at times in this game the way they kept the ball the way they moved it the way they frustrated Miami Joe is that something basically my assumption is that this was NYCFC being about as good as they could be especially with some of those injuries and absences Miami being about as poor as they could be and I'm wondering how much you expect NYCFC to look this good against Montreal? I don't think they'll look this good because Montreal are a far, far better defensive team than they're in Miami. And I, I would expect NYCFC, even playing away from home, to have a lot of the ball in that game. I think Montreal will cede some of the possession. They're still going to have lots of it, Montreal. But I think NYCFC will have a much tougher team to break down. And they're also going to get tested way more in defense. The, my biggest question mark around this, this NYCFC team right now is their defensive work. They were pretty gappy in their press. When they did press and when they sat back in, in sort of a 5-4-1 block, I thought it looked soft. And that's been kind of the biggest problem that Nick Cushing has had to deal with besides all these injuries. The biggest tactical problem that seemingly he's shifted is he's taken some of the emphasis away from the press and put it into this pretty mushy mid-low block. And I don't, I don't really understand it. Maybe it was to save legs. I don't, I don't know what the deal was. But I think NYCFC can be vulnerable defensively. So they played very well in the attack in this game. I have my reservations about them as an entire unit right now. But, I mean, we'll see what that looks like in the next round. Uh, we should pause for a moment to say uh, farewell to Gonzalo Higuain. I, I can't imagine that he expected the kind of final game of his career to be at <laughs> City Field in the rain in a playoff loss. That's on him for, for not for seeing it. That's on him for not seeing that very real possibility <laughs> when he came to MLS. Joe, uh, Joe, Bobby had very strong opinions about Gonzalo Higuain, uh, none of them positive. What do you feel like will be his legacy in MLS if he even has one? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think he'll have a legacy, and I think it's largely going to be defined by the early stages of his time in Major League Soccer, where 
didn't really seem to be trying all that hard and wasn't very good. It is, in general, a positive note that he left on, even with Miami getting pretty roundly yeah. beaten in this game. He turned it up the last stretch of this season and scored a bunch of goals and was genuinely very fun to watch. So I will... I will remember that I think a lot of MLS folks that I think a lot of folks that spend a lot of time watching this league will remember that. For me, though, that does not overshadow really the lack of help he was to Miami for the majority of his time in this league. Yeah, I'm, I'm at least pleased we got to see something close to peak Higgayan for his, his last two or three months in MLS. But I think the regret from Inter Miami will surely be that. They didn't do more to to build a complete system around him, and obviously there's some blame on his part as well. Whereas in that first in that first season, he was basically living the life of I don't know, like Iggy Pop at Miami Beach, uh, <laughs> and, and not really doing all that much. But nonetheless, you you saw the finishing ability was still there, and we saw that in, over the last two three months. And it, yes, the the signing of Pozuelo helped and gave him a bit of a supply line, but it never really felt like Inter Miami had that 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 team built around them. They never really harnessed him and. I think there is a chance that Inter Miami continue to improve with the money they're spending. That that seems likely. It might not be with Phil Neville in charge, but I reckon they'll look back and maybe regret not doing a better job of building around him because there's no guarantee they'll find another finisher like him, at least not for a few seasons until Ronaldo signs on at 41 or 42. I mean, they tried to build around him. They just didn't know that they couldn't have nine DPs to do so. So I, I guess yeah, you, you live and learn and on you go. We'll see what Miami do in the offseason. One more game from this round to talk about. And Graham, I would love to hear your thoughts on Dallas and Minnesota. But I'd love to first hear your perspective on when a pitch doesn't exactly look like a pitch. So we had uh, NYCFC playing at City Field. So you had some of the baseball field yeah. Somewhat evidence you got you got parts of the infield covered up to make this game happen. In this game you had some football lines still there. Which of those is more if not offensive than uh troublesome for you? The baseball field every single day is the, is, yep. it's the base field ba- baseball field. At least with at least with Dallas the lines the soccer lines were quite pronounced. I watched um when was it? It must have been decision day. It was it was uh, DC United Cincinnati. And that Audi field gets used for football, right? There's, yeah. There were football they, lines on they, that. They rent it out uh, for different sports, yeah. So it gets chewed yeah. up pretty quick. So the really confusing thing about that field is that they, they seem to keep the soccer lines and the and the football lines similar kind of faintness. It's quite difficult to make both of them out rather than maybe bringing one up a little bit. I think FC Dallas did that. So they try and kind of scrub out the football lines a little bit and then repaint the soccer line. So it's clear which ones you're meant to follow. The Audi field ones are so confusing and it kind of just looks like they're playing on a grass field without any lines on it. So Audi field actually is number one, but then anything is, you know, a baseball field. I actually... Uh, can't quite believe that an MLS team, a marquee MLS franchise, is, is still playing playoff games in, on a baseball field like it's the late 90s. Um, but I, I will say that City Field does actually look a better venue for a soccer match because I think a lot of the seats are closer to the pitch than is the case at, at Yankee Stadium. So, yeah, maybe NYCFC should play yeah. more games at, at City Field. They're closer. There's still that weird angle where they're definitely moving away from the field in certain spots. Yeah. And I think with how big it is to not have it fully sold out, was it just wasn't the best look for a team that were as good as as New York were and as fun as they were. I think it would have been nice to have them in a in a smaller, uh, yeah. more like populated, intense atmosphere. Hopefully, they end up getting their stadium at some point in the next 
30 or 40 years. I wonder who gets it first between <laughs> New York and Inter-Miami. We'll Inter-Miami's defense, which is not something I say very often, I think they have actually got planning permission for a, a site and they own land. I don't think NYCFC have any of those things. So yeah, 40 years might be a conservative estimate on when they're getting their stadium. <laughs> the Richmond Kickers have a 40-year lease uh, to renovate and work on the on the on city stadium here i wonder who gets a a fully modern stadium first the richmond kickers or nycfc again we'll, we'll keep an eye on it for now joe now that we've talked about the giant taco and the football lines are there other things you'd like to talk about from dallas one <laughs> minnesota one ah uh, man that velasco penalty was good yeah. right that was fun panenka to end it is exceptional and he played i think a, a decent game alan velasco Taylor, I was thinking back to your very specific prediction to start the season, which basically the point of it was, correct me if I'm wrong, like maybe cool it on our expectations for Velasco, right? I, I think in you said something. In the beginning of the season, yeah. yeah. You were right because he hasn't done a ton this year. Six goals and five assists in 26 games. At least I believe those are the regular season numbers. So I think you were kind of right. This Dallas team in general I thought was underwhelming in this game, just like Minnesota was underwhelming. Minnesota get on the board first. And it is a great goal from Minoso who just said, like, I'm, I'm tired of this. We're putting the ball in the back of the net. And, and does exactly that from outside the box with his left foot. And then Dallas get a, a good goal off of a well-worked set piece. But neither team really executed their game plan all that well. Minnesota wasn't all that dangerous on the break. Dallas wasn't all that dangerous in possession. Neither team created much in, in regulation. You go to extra time. Jesus Ferreira, I believe that was an extra time, right, where he has that miss that sort of set Twitter alight again. Either way, Jesus Ferreira doesn't put the ball in the back of the net. It's still tied. It goes to penalty kicks, and Dallas do get the victory there. I thought Minnesota, honestly, when it went to penalties, were going to get the job done because Dane St. Clair is a very good goalkeeper. But credit to Dallas. They did enough, just enough in this game, to secure a, a really fun matchup against Austin in the next round. Uh, Graham, any thoughts on this one that aren't taco-related yourself? <laughs> Not really. That I have to be honest, that became my dominant yeah. thought from this match was the, the giant taco. And, and the match was uh, a little bit disappointing. I thought it, it was set up to be an interesting tactical matchup because of the, the way both teams like to play in transition. But by the end of the 120 minutes, I was quite pleased we were going to get a penalty shootout to decide it. And I'm with Joe. Eight saves in this match from Dane Sinclair, who it felt like the shootout was set up for him to be the hero, but that is not how it panned out at all. So yes, my 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 prominent, my most prominent thought from this game is, is all about that tackle. Joe, uh, I already brought up the Aaron Long uh, mistake or lack of defensive play uh, in his game. In this one, we had Jesus Ferreira missing a, a pretty solid chance. He had another one that he that he failed to take, but he, I think he would have been offside for that one. Uh, any, any thoughts on Jesus Ferreira's performance in this game other than hoping we see better in the next round? Yeah, sometimes you miss shots. Like That is my thought. He mm-hmm. He's overperformed his expected goals by a sizable amount this year. He's been very, very good. Sometimes you you just don't hit the ball right, and that is true for every single soccer player out there at any level. And I, I really don't read too much into those misses from like a broader national team perspective. Dallas obviously would have loved for those to hit the back of the net, but even they know that Jesus Ferreira is their probably their best attacker by a pretty significant margin at the moment, and, and he's absolutely going to be key for them in the next round. Yeah, he, he scored 18 goals in the regular season, so I think we can, in this particular case, we can give... Jesus Freire a, a bit of a buy for some of those misses. 
I was very confused uh, on the the Mrs. Note uh, looking at MLS Soccer's like lineup graphic because they listed the penalty takers and scores for Dallas, but I don't believe they did for Minnesota. So it looked for a moment like Dallas won this game 6-1, to one, and I was very confused why that wasn't a bigger talking point until I realized what had actually happened. Uh, since we don't have a ton to say about this game... When we're looking at the next round, let's start with Austin versus Dallas. And Joe, I'm going to kind of set you up to agree or disagree. Reading your your column for Backheeled, it sounds like uh, I think you build the Dallas-Minnesota game as two teams who like maybe aren't quite at that next level that they would need to be, that aren't quite good enough to be title challengers. So with that in mind, is this basically a game that you feel like Austin should be winning? I, I do think Austin have the advantage. They're going to be favored in the betting markets. They're playing at home. Q2, I believe, already sold out. So that's another sellout for them in a hugely long streak. I, I'm i not totally sold on Austin either. I know, I know people are tired of hearing me say that at this point, or at least Austin fans are tired of hearing that about this team. But I, I'm not all the way there on Austin, just like I'm not all the way there with Dallas. I think there are pretty clear weaknesses in both of these teams. So I'm excited for this game, though, because I do think it's going to be more open. I, I do think it could go either way. I think if you're, if you're giving me even odds for both teams, I'm I'm betting on Austin in this game, again, just because they're playing at home and they do have some some real MVP-ish kinds of talents in their team. Uh, but I wouldn't be surprised if this one went either way. Graham, uh, do, you, do you have a uh, leaning one way or the other? Yeah, Austin just because of the home advantage. But actually, if I look at both semifinals in, in the West, um, obviously the other game being El Trafico, I don't know, I'm quite I'm quite hot on the Galaxy right now. So I, th- I think that second semifinal, whoever comes through El Trafico, for me, goes to MLS Cup. But both semifinals, I'm, I'm, it wouldn't surprise me if any of those teams win, win that game. But I'll, I'll say Austin and... Uh, I'll go with the Galaxy. I don't know. I just there's there's track there's track records of the teams that that have those uh, you know New, Eng- New England Revolution last year having the ten day break didn't do them any favors. So there's a bit of, there's a track record of that not really working out for number one seeds or number two seeds. So yeah, I'll go with Austin and Galaxy to win the two semifinals. Worth noting, Austin and Dallas both going to penalties uh, means they're both going to be slightly tired, but they do get that break. That game won't be until Sunday at 8 p.m., Austin-Dallas. Earlier than that would be El Trafico, LAFC versus the Galaxy on the 20th. Is that Thursday? Is that what we got going on? Yep, Thursday night, yep. 10 p.m., that's a late one. Uh, Joe, what are your expectations for this one? Less so from a result, more so from the tactics, from the way the game plays out uh, on the pitch and the adjustments that might happen. Yeah, chaos is my expectation. These <laughs> these games are pretty much always super weird and wild and fun. So, yeah, I'm sorry for you that it's at 10 p.m., Taylor, and what, yeah, Graham, 3 a.m. for you? Is that what it is? 3 a.m., yeah. Uh, yeah. I so, won't be complaining. Never mind. Sorry, Graham. It's it's tough, <laughs> no matter what. But, man, there's just so much potential for pure and unbridled, wild wackiness in this game. LAFC will try to control things at home to the best of their ability, but they're also happy to hit in transition. They have the quality to do both of those things. One thing that really intrigues me in this game, it's not going to be like a one-on-one matchup because that's not really how soccer works, but you have Ricky Puj in midfield for the Galaxy, and you have uh, Jose Cifuentes in midfield for LAFC. Remember Cifuentes' name? He's going to be at the World Cup with Ecuador. He has been up until Ricky Puj got here, even though they're different profiles. He has been the best midfielder in MLS. I would give that nod to Puj at this point, at least as a number eight. So Cifuentes is dynamic. He's aggressive. He's skilled on the ball. He makes those box-arriving runs that I talked about earlier with Kone. 
He's a very well-rounded player, and he is, in a lot of ways, the lifeblood of this LAFC team and just doesn't get talked about enough. So I'm curious to see how he performs if if it's either Sifuentes or Puj that steals the spotlight, or maybe it's someone else that I didn't mention. But this game is set up to be a really, really fun one. Is this the one that you are most excited about of the playoffs so far? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I do think it is the most fun one. In terms of the, the game that I think could be the prettiest to watch, I think I'd give that nod to Montreal NYCFC if we're looking ahead. But yeah, a playoff El Trafico is is beautiful. I'm really excited for that. Well, then, yeah, let's go ahead and look at that one. That one is also on Sunday. That one's at 1 p.m., at least for me, Montreal NYCFC. Joe, why are you expecting it to be pretty? Just because they're two very disciplined, well-drilled teams who are going to do interesting things? Yeah, that feels like it's going to be pretty good. I I just think both teams are really fun to watch, right? Montreal are really good in possession. NYCFC are really good in possession. Maybe there's some element of that that tightens this game up, and it's actually not as fun as I want it to be. But the two best goals of the first round of the playoffs, in my mind, or at least the two best team goals— the first one, the best one, came from NYCFC, that, that long passing sequence that we talked about earlier that Maxi Morales finishes. And the second best one came from Montreal, right, with Kone finishing off the attack in the box after just a great bit of combination play and, and, and precise passing in the final third. Those are the two teams that pull out the, the most aesthetic stuff on a regular basis. LAFC, I'd probably put third in this. Maybe the Galaxy third, LAFC fourth. But when those two teams go head-to-head, yeah, I'm, I'm, in, I'm very intrigued to see how that matchup goes. Montreal are at home, and so they, they do have the edge in that way, but NYCFC are hot right now, and I think they played better in round one than Montreal did. So, man, that's going to be a fun one as well. Uh, Viva la Montreal. There you go. That's my French. Uh, Graham, uh, since I asked Joe, wh- what was your, I think you already said your favorite game, but were there any other teams that really impressed you one way or the other or stood out to you? Um, not so much in terms of the round one performance, but just everything that I've seen about Cincinnati, mm-hmm. I'm fully on board that train. And even though Philadelphia are a very good team, and I said in our preview show that maybe these playoffs are the, the culmination of the last few years under under Jim Curtin, I'm kind of instinctively pulling for Cincinnati just because it's such a good sto- good story to go from, you know, wooden spoon winners, if winners is the right term, to being genuine playoff contenders and just that attack of Acosta, Brenner and, and, and Vasquez and everything that they do in games and, and, and the chaos that they bring and the goals that they scored, I, I, I just find them entertaining. So I would like to watch more of them in higher stakes games. So yeah, Cincinnati, just instinctively, I would like to see them in the in the conference finals. Um, and then Montreal, NYCFC is, is, is an interesting game as well. But it's, it's Cincinnati who I... They're the team that I am keeping the closest eye on now that they're through the first round. Joe, Graham talking about Cincinnati has me starting to construct a narrative in my head. I'm going to do that out loud, and then I'm going to have you dash that quite expertly by telling me why Philadelphia (laughs) will win this game. But you mentioned uh, previously that Cincinnati getting past Red Bulls was like the Red Bulls are kind of the inspiration for the way FC Cincinnati wants to play. So that was a, a symbolic as well as literal victory. Uh, we know that there's a strong connection between Cincinnati and Philly. Is it is it the manager and the general yeah, manager? So Chris Albright, both? yeah, yeah, Chris so, Albright and Pat Noonan both came from from Philly. There you go. So there's there's that connection there. So if Cincinnati get past their sort of like tactical inspiration, then they get past their <laughs> their front office inspiration. This is the big yeah. boss. Yeah, yeah. Basically, that's right, then then I'm I'm picturing a scenario in which NYCFC win. So then you get uh, Cincinnati versus the reigning champions in the Eastern Conference Final. You get past them, and then maybe it's them versus like LAFC, the the shiny or it's the Galaxy, the shiny jewel. Uh, it feels like the stage is set for the uh, underdog plucky FC Cincinnati to make it all the way to the MLS Cup and maybe win it entirely. And so now, Joe, is where you tell me that Philly will uh, trounce them resoundingly. 
No, I love that narrative. I tailored that is beautifully crafted. And the fact that you did it on the fly is really, really good. So I love the narrative. I do think Philly are, are the obvious favorites at home. That's how that's how this works. They were the, the best team in the regular season if you factor in goal difference instead of instead of wins as the tiebreaker, which is what MLS uses. But they were they were brilliant for large stretches of the regular season. They've had time to rest and regroup. Maybe that's a disadvantage. I think it's probably an advantage in the grand scheme of things. But the the one deciding factor for me that I can envision in this game is how gappy Cincinnati's press can be. And, and I, I noticed this watching them play against the Red Bulls over the weekend. And and they press and they step high up the field, but there is there's a lot of space between those lines at times. Matt Miazga's helped, Noel Boto has helped in midfield, but Philly are going to be better suited to exploit some of the gaps and exploit the second ball opportunities, I think, than the Red Bulls were just because they're a better team and they do have more attacking talent than the Red Bulls. So I think it is going to be difficult for Cincinnati to win in this game. I would not be completely shocked because if you're shocked at anything that happens in the MLS playoffs, you're you're barking up the wrong tree because crazy things happen in the MLS playoffs. But Philly should be favored. Uh, Taylor, your narrative is excellent, though, and I, I kind of hope it happens. Uh, I, I should say it's my narrative until I scroll down to the bottom of our running order for today, for today, in which Joe has written Philadelphia v. Cincinnati, fun narrative with Philly 2.0 coming to Philly. So maybe <laughs> maybe partially inspired by what you already had uh, in the show notes. Uh, Joe, do you want to make any predictions on any of these games? I will not force you to, but uh, are there any teams that you feel like have proven they are likely to make it to the next round or any teams that you think have proven that they are less likely to make it out of the, out of, uh, the next knockout round? I'll do it just for fun. Graham, you want to do it with me? We'll do it together and we'll each pick who we think is going to win all these games. Yeah, I'll do it. I'm going to do it. Okay, so let's <laughs> let's do Philly Cincy first. I think Philly will win. Graham, what do you think? Uh, yeah, I think Philly will win. I want Cincy to win, but yeah, I think Philly all will right, do so it. you both gone Philly. I'll remember that. I'm keeping receipts, as Twitter would say. LAFC versus the Galaxy. Graham, you can go first on this one. I'll trail behind you. Uh, my... I'm going to go with my, I mean, this sounds like I'm, I'm a Galaxy fan, but my, my heart, my gut tells me the Galaxy are going to win that. My my gut kind of does too, but I'm going to go with my brain on this one. Maybe that's a bad idea. I'm going to say LAFC, but Graham, I, I do kind of feel the Galaxy tie in this one. Either way, LAFC, that's what I'm doing. All right. What about Montreal, NYCFC, Graham? Uh, NYCFC. I'll say Montreal just because I think they're a bit more well-rounded right now and they have that home field advantage. All right. And Joe, Austin, Dallas. I'm gonna say Dallas just because, Ooh. man. I'm gonna I'm gonna say it. People can be angry if they want to be. I'm probably gonna be wrong, but I'm gonna say Dallas. I feel like that's a troll job. It is Graham. a little bit. It is a little bit. <laughs> I'm gonna go with Austin yeah, for I, that one. So we only agreed on one. We only agreed on Philly. The other three, we we have different picks. I love it. All right. Well, we will find out what happens. I have successfully sat on the fence for this one. Graham, <laughs> what does the winner get? Uh, big taco. Two yeah, points from taco. Taylor. You, 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 two you points from Taylor and a big taco. Deal. Yeah. You get you get an extra big taco in New York. That's how it's going to work. Yes. <laughs> oh, I got some work to do to make those things happen. Uh, Graham Ruthven, thank you for, uh, I'm assuming, staying up late and waking up early to watch MLS and then talk about yeah. it today. <laughs> yeah, I watched uh, like six full MLS games today. So uh, thank you, Taylor Rockwell. That was fun. <laughs> I hope it was. Joe Lowry, uh, thank you as well, my friend, for talking about all those games and giving us uh, a solid little preview there as well. Right back at you, Taylor. Listeners, thank you all for listening. Uh, Many more shows still to come this week in the TSS feed, but for now, we'll talk to you soon.